Hey everyone, it's Mike from You'll Probably Agree. Sorry it took so long to get this episode up to you. Um, I just got a little delayed with work and life. Nothing good, nothing bad, just work. So I got a little busy. Having said that, uh, Ian Simmons and I talk about The Aviator. That movie about Howard Hughes, the filmmaker, the aviation genius that he was. And of course how... Uh, back during the 1940s, people thought of guys like him as a little crazy. Well, now in 2020, we can see that he was a man of taste. <laughs> uh, but seriously, it, it feels like we're all uh, have gone uh, gone a little Howard Hughes-ish with our OCD these days with the pandemic. I still can't believe I'm using the word pandemic. But that's the new reality that we live in today, that we're... Um, and that, that has been set upon us. Uh, I want to thank my sponsor, Galway Bay, uh, located at 500 West Diversity Parkway in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, this is the, the best dive bar. I think it was rated one of the top 10 dive bars in Chicago. And they're still up. They're still running. And if you want to go there, you know, you'll be treated like a true local. They don't go in there and say, oh, hello, sir. Like you're just some guy. Let's see. The fuck do you want to drink? <laughs> I'm just kidding. They, they they won't be like that until you get to know them a little bit. But seriously, uh, Nolan Patrick Rafferty, the guy who's uh, run the play since the beginning. I think he's run it maybe for a little over ten years, probably way longer than that. When I get Nolan on my show, I'll uh, ask him myself. He's done an incredible job with the place. He let me set up my lights and my cameras and everything in there. It's a blast. You know, it's a great place to go if you just kind of want to hang out with some friends play some retro video games or some pool or some darts what have you you know it's got that good irish lived in feel because well it's run by a bunch of guys from ireland every bar i've ever filmed my show at has literally been run by people from like off the boat ireland anyways if you're too afraid to go inside of a bar you can go on their dual drinkware page and the link to that page will be uh, located in the episode description where you can buy a bunch of their stuff, whether it be coasters or T-shirts or glasses. And I own a few of them, and they're awesome. So anyways, thank you, Galway Bay. And without further ado, we're going to start the episode about the aviator. So thanks a lot. Show me all the blueprints. 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 Welcome to You'll Probably Agree. I'm with uh, Ian Simmons. Sorry, what the fuck? Ian Simmons from kickingtheseat.com. Uh, and today we're talking about what it feels like to be stuck in quarantine uh, with uh, The Aviator, a movie where at the time we laughed at Howard Hughes's disease. And now we're like, oh, I see you're a man of taste. <laughs> so. Uh, Having said that, uh, interesting film to revisit. Um, it, it certainly is something that is relevant today. I just kept thinking of that scene where he goes into the bathroom. Uh, there's two scenes like that. I think it was the one where he washes his hands so much that he cuts it and it's bleeding. Mm -hmm. And now when I wash my hands these days, I'm basically at that point. And... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it is with guys named Howard, but we got Howard Hughes, Howie Mandel, like all germaphobes. Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. Yeah. 
I mean, he, he he took a bath with that one duck that had like the duck titties in that and Howard the Duck. Well, in fairness, he was just flying through her house, not unlike Howard Hughes in that plane. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. See. Yeah, that was, I, I like to think of that as Spielberg's homage to Howard Hughes. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I think uh, Lucas and Spielberg produced that. Mm. Oh boy, God! <laughs> uh, there was a lot of directors attached to the Aviator. I think Spielberg at one point was interested in uh, directing the Aviator. And uh, I think by the 10th director was Christopher Nolan, who wanted to do an adaptation with Jim Carrey, but they didn't secure the rights to film it in time before this film went into production. Wow. That would have been really interesting. Jim Carrey and Christopher Nolan are just trying to picture what that would be i don't know and i don't know that i would have wanted to see it uh outside of being a fascination um because there's something about the combination of dicaprio and scorsese that i think just makes this the perfect version of this story yeah absolutely you have two people who've worked together uh before on gangsta new york Subsequently, they worked together on two to three other films. Uh, three other films, actually. Yeah, it was uh, Wolf of Wall Street, um, The Departed. Mm-hmm. What else am I missing? Shutter Island. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street, Departed, Shutter Island. I think, yeah, that was the three others. Uh, they were the perfect marriage of actor and director to sort of bring together a story about a man who's passionate about aviation and passionate about filmmaking in terms of how time moves forward in that movie. It was pretty confusing because until I read up a little on Howard Hughes, I only knew sort of the basics from this film because when I saw it, it was in 2004. That's when I was in high school and I reached my Martin Scorsese level of obsession mm. where all of his work I had to see. When I was a kid, I didn't care that much for it. When I was older, I was infatuated by it. I was absolutely floored by Raging Bull. It was my favorite film of all time. It's still one of my favorite films. I can't rake a favorite film amongst all films. I guess if you put a gun on to my head, it would be Space Odyssey. Uh, but Raging Bull would be a close second. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that uh, that I could get into. With The Aviator, I truly appreciated how you understood the passion of Howard Hughes, how it depicted his OCD. And having a sister with OCD, it's pretty close to the real thing. She doesn't piss in milk jars and you know walk around in a, in a room naked and put herself in quarantine she'll do stuff like tapping something uh enough times because if you don't tap everyone you know will die or something crazy like that so th- this movie kind of captured what it's like to constantly go over that repeated thought in your head you know whether, you, whether he's constantly saying show me all the blueprints show me all the blueprints show me all the blueprints uh, or he say the way the future or anything else 
it really kind of gets into that mindset. Uh, what was your experience? Uh, did you did you watch the movie again, or have you seen it like so much? It's like you kind of knew it by heart. Well, I've seen it twice. Yeah. I saw it uh, when it first came out, and then I watched it. Uh, I just finished like twenty minutes before jumping on here, because mm. um, it's three hours long. I gotta yeah, <laughs> I gotta divvy up my time. It's a um, long one, yeah. You know, I. My experience with The Aviator is kind of unique because when I first saw it, I think I loved it, but I was in such a weird headspace. Uh, it was my wife and I's anniversary. This is December of 20, 2004, and we decided to go to a movie like we always did, except that I, and I don't remember the context of it, but I had had some kind of a nervous breakdown at my job. Uh, and that afternoon, I left early from work. She picked me up and we drove to... I don't think it was a doctor. It might've been some kind of a hospital situation. Somebody checked me out and basically said, you're under way too much stress. You're not sleeping. And they, I don't remember if they even gave me anything. They just kind of sent us on our way. And I was like the act of getting treatment kind of calmed me down. So we went right to see The Aviator, uh, a nice uh, relaxing movie that is not in any way connected to mental health issues. Um, <laughs> But uh, no, I, it's just, I was, I appreciated the genius of Scorsese and, and, you know, DiCaprio's performance, but watching it last night and today, I don't know why I haven't watched this movie more over the years, because I think it's one of my favorite Scorsese pictures. Uh, it really, you know, he does like to do profiles of, you know, troubled young men, but I think this is one that speaks to one of the most complex people he's ever tackled. Uh, and it, I think it, explores a lot about filmmaking, about film history, about mental illness, about politics. Um, that entire uh, third act showdown between DiCaprio and Alan Alda as a crooked senator. I mean, it's, it's beautiful stuff and you can almost make an entire film out of that. Uh, so yeah, it, you know, high marks for me for The Aviator. Um, I had forgotten how complex it was and it was really nice to, to go back and, and look at it today, especially because I've been kind of obsessed with Kate Blanchett lately. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I watched, I revisited the gift a month or two ago uh, and her Catherine Hepburn in this movie, I think that's the one thing I didn't respond to mm -hmm. back in 2004 mm -hmm. is because I think particularly that opening scene where she does seem to be doing almost the Bugs Bunny impression of Catherine Hepburn. I was like, Oh, that's all she's doing. But watching it again, I'm like, no, there's a lots of layers to that performance. Part of it is that kind of cartoonish public Hollywood movie star persona. And then part of it is just, you know, the, the way she navigates the world. Mm -hmm. um, it's beautiful stuff. And I, you know, not nothing against Kate Beckinsale, but the, <laughs> when, when uh, Kate Blanchett exits the picture, my heart kind of sank. Mm. Well, Blanchett did win an Oscar for that performance. Uh, and, I had the same feeling when I first saw her Catherine Hepburn sort of impression because it felt very much like someone doing an impression in that film. Mm -hmm. you know, but I guess that was sort of the – because the first scene we see her in, I believe she was playing golf with Howard Hughes. Sort of. It's the yeah. scene where he lands and goes to pick her up to play golf. And it, I don't think yeah. she actually – I think she might just say, like, hi or something like that. But we don't really get to see her until, like, a couple minutes later. That's nitpicking. Right, 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 right. I just remember they were – they had the golf scene. 
and she's so over the top. And I'm thinking, how does she win the Oscar for this? Like, I get that <laughs> Catherine Hepburn sounded like that, but it almost felt like, felt like she was putting on this big sort of cartoonish performance. But as the movie evolves, you realize, oh, she kind of was putting on a performance in that particular instance. And then when you see sort of more of how she really is, she kind of doesn't know whether she's acting or not, as Hughes points out to Hepburn later on in the picture during their breakup scene. Yeah. Uh, which the, the cinematography in the movie, I, I love. Uh, although it was weird during the golfing scene, I was wondering why the the grass was blue in that scene. I wonder if, some, if that was an odd choice in the color grading or Christopher Nolan came in and, you know, he's red, green, colorblind. And he's just like, uh, I was supposed to make this picture. I'm trying to do an English accent. I can't um, make it, make it, make it blue. Why? I don't know. No, that, that's Michael Caine representing Christopher Nolan on the uh, film. I want you to make it blue, okay? Make <laughs> it blue and make it whack. By the way, um, side note, if you've, have, you, have you ever seen Michael Winterbottom's The Trip? No. It's available on Hulu if you have that. Uh, it's Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon as two guys uh, going on a, like a road trip. Yeah. And they're constantly trying to out-actor each other by doing impressions. Yeah. Throughout the film, they riff on Michael Caine. It's <laughs> really funny. So, yeah, sidebar. <laughs> I trusted you. You found me. <laughs> I'm very emotional, Michael Caine. That's good. That's good. Yeah. yeah um, uh, but no, I, that 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 blue grass also uh, shows up later when he crashes the big plane, um, uh, the, the test plane in the uh, the beet field. Uh, yeah. And that yeah that I didn't notice it so much in the golf scene, but yeah that uh, that beat field scene, I was like, yeah, this looks this is almost like the Land of Oz or something. It's it's really technical in your face, and it feels like it's trying to make a statement, but I don't know about what. Yeah, maybe about how the world is off kilter for Hughes in a way. I know it won uh, the the Oscar for best cinematography, and uh, one scene in particular that I love is when Catherine Hepburn and Howard Hughes are breaking up. Uh, there's this uh, huge amount of light that's spilled on a Hughes, where it's almost like he's in his own personal quarantine. <laughs> and he's cut off from everyone else, yet Hepburn is normally lit in that scene. And then later in the film, when DiCaprio, or I should say Howard Hughes, really is in his own personal hell... The lighting on him is full-fledged. Everything is completely red. It's sort of an homage back to that scene, especially when Hepburn is talking to Howard Hughes through the door of his personal screening room that he's in where he's butt naked. The Both of them are completely lit in red, sort of echoing back to that scene where he was beginning to enter his own personal hell. Whenever something in his life would happen that was alarming or troubling, something he couldn't control, something that upset him, the, the, there was a, a large amount of light projected onto him, and he would go a little further and a little further down to that road of insanity. So that was like a little detail I noticed that really stood out to me with Robert Richardson's cinematography that I just thought was fantastic. Uh, something I didn't notice when I first saw the movie. 
Yeah, and there's, um, I think this is in the trailer. There's also that scene where he's uh, in the car gripping the steering wheel and there's all the sparks going off. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, you get these giant sweeps of light all over his face, almost like drowning him out. Um, yeah, I agree. It's, it's really haunting stuff. Um, and I like that, th- I can't think of other movies about mental illness that uh, portray it quite like this. They don't get overly explainy about what's going on. There's no scene with the doctor saying, oh, well, he was, you know, he was younger. He went through this tragedy with his mother and she was crazy or whatever. Um, but also uh, it doesn't have a nice little happy ending where he gets treatment and we figure, oh, everything's going to be okay. There's a nice fake out that Scorsese executes with, uh, I assume, uh, John Logan, the screenwriter, mm-hmm. where after they get the spruce, spruce goose off the ground and you know it's airborne that comes back down proving that you can have a uh, what is it, a 200 ton wooden plane <laughs> with a wingspan the size of a football field take off and land safely uh hughes is like making plans to you know innovate jet technology he's kissing ava gardner and sending her away uh and everything seems fine until you get that just that one glimpse of a guy, like a some kind of a porter across the uh, yeah. the hangar with the white gloves. And he's like, does that guy work for me? And then you yeah. get the really creepy delivery by John C. Riley. Everybody works for you, Mr. Hughes. Which I don't know if that was supposed to be subjective as mm-hmm. uh, the way that Howard is imagining he said it or if that's the way he just really said it because um, he realized something's going wrong. But when, uh, was it, I think Matt Ross and uh, John C. Riley are ushering a nervous breaking down, thinking of the future, whatever, uh, mumbling mm-hmm. Howard Hughes off to the side, like nobody can see him like this. It's a creepy yeah. ending. I love that ending, absolutely. Because it's, it's, it tells you everything as to where his future is going to go. Because if you know about the real Howard Hughes, I believe he died in a hotel room being in the state he was towards the third act of the picture with no clothes on, his fingernails grew out, he had the long beard. And, yeah, he died in that state because I, I always just imagine. And, yeah, he's, he's lit in that very minimalistic way where there's only just him looking at himself in the mirror. And it, it ended like Raging Bull in a way where uh, Jake LaMotta's, like, doing his – practice boxing rounds at his own reflection here you have howard hughes battling his own reflection as well battling his mental illness constantly saying the way the future you know again (laughs) and again and again and then it just cuts to black uh same way with ragey bull cuts to black he's going and then bam and his echo and his voice even echoes a little bit towards the end there so i don't know if uh Scorsese was thinking about that when he put that in the picture or if that was just something in the back of his head, sort of like how he always has people do the Jesus pose with Mm. the camera overhead in all of his movies. You know, and that's something uh, I was watching the Blu-ray because even though I hadn't seen the aviator in 16 years, I still bought it on Blu-ray. Firmly believe that I would watch it again. Um, I noticed there's a commentary on it Mm. by Scorsese. And I was like, damn it. I wish I had planned this out better so I could listen to it because I think that's a very good question about, you know, what he was thinking at the end. What I loved is that uh, a lot of historical dramas, end with the cut to black and then you've got the title cards explaining you know howard hughes lived for another yeah. 30 years and they died in a hotel or whatever don't do that he doesn't do that so thank god left it. <laughs> and you know i would have 
respected it if he had, but I loved at the end, it's almost like a great documentary where you're like, oh, now I've, I got to go out and do my own research. I, I got to find a book on Howard Hughes or a, mm-hmm. or a good documentary to watch to see what happened. Because um, you get the sense that he is sort of incurable, especially in the time that he was living in. Mm. You know, and and his profile, like he almost couldn't afford to, like the rumors of his having gone around the bend were bad enough to almost bring him down. Like if he'd gone to, you know, sit on someone's couch and be psychoanalyzed, A, I don't know if there was anyone qualified to really treat him in that way. And B, how long before someone squealed and it just, you know, came out that he was a nut job. No disrespect to uh, <laughs> to people with OCD. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Because back then, I, I just wonder how horrible it must have been because nobody knew what the stuff was back then, probably. To, the, to them, they just thought he was crazy. They, he couldn't explain what it was because he didn't know what it was. Um, so it, it, it's, it, that's, that must have been uh, your own personal nightmare, which is, I guess, why they kind of shot it that way in the movie. Uh, but it was a loving tribute to mental illness that I, I don't see a lot in movies. It was very mm-hmm. delicately handled. I thought sometimes it was a little unintentionally funny, but it might have been me. Like, like the scene where he's in the bathroom and his hand reaches towards the doorknob and they just have that profile shot of his hand, his perfectly pedicured hand or manicured hand, where it's just slowly going towards the door and then it slowly backs away. I don't know why, but I started to giggle a little bit. What I thought was funnier than that was that because to set up, I think that was right after he cut himself on the soap. Yeah. Every like cloth towel in the place to clean up his mess, including his bloody hand. Yeah. And then he realized he didn't have anything with which to grip the, uh, the doorknob to open it and get out. So he ends up leaning against the bathroom wall, waiting for someone <laughs> else to come in. I'm like, is the bathroom wall really, I guess it was a high-end place or something, but I'm just thinking I would not lean up against a bathroom wall for anything as <laughs> an alternative to touching a door handle. I, I wondered, he's worried about germs, but he's going to walk around with an open wound? <laughs> I guess he did what he had to. That's the thing is it's it's interesting because – it's he has certain defense mechanisms that his internal yeah. logic and body sort of call into play as like these these zero hour efforts to protect himself. Um, you'll notice uh, later on when he goes to that meeting with the senator, uh, Senator Owen uh, something uh, played by Alan Alda, mm-hmm. who's in the pocket of Hughes's rival um, at Pan Am. Uh, the senator puts a finger a thumbprint on the glass that he's going to offer to Howard Hughes and he has him served a plate of fish with the fish head still on it and it looks like it's practically raw he knows he's going to freak Hughes out because he's heard the rumors Hughes gets through that lunch mm-hmm. and he even kind of sticks it to him a little bit as he's walking out but the moment he gets out into that hallway you see him go into a full-blown panic mode like it was just enough to get him through that and they completely fell to pieces Mm, yeah yeah that 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 was a great detail i love how they do kind of establish katherine hepburn from ava gardner where well, i don't know why i started on that but hepburn she always knew understood him in a way where they kind of grew up in similar backgrounds something that they didn't cover in the movie you know because you think if you watch this movie you think howard hughes made it all on his own and uh, the thing is he was brilliant at I think the age of 
11 or 19, he built his own sort of radio, one of the <laughs> first people to do it. And he was an absolute genius. Whether or not he came from a lot of money or not, it, it wouldn't matter. I think he would have been successful either way. Uh, but Heppard understood him because they kind of grew up in a background where they had a lot of money, despite that one scene that I thought was kind of questionable when he calls out Hepburn's family during dinner where he said, you don't worry about money because you've always had it. I'm like, well, your dad had an oil company when you were a kid. He created like one of the first drill bit machines. You sold his tool company in order to pursue your career. Your uncle was a famous writer, author, and director. But Having said that, I think the Hepburn and Hughes always were sort of maybe the odd ones in the family. Hepburn knew how to hide it a little more and be together with her family and know how to socialize where Hughes was sort of a, uh, a, a socially awkward mess. Well, I mean, as far as that, because I, I did like that lunch scene with the Hepburns and I, yeah. I did appreciate the fact that he called them out because when he pulls up uh they pull up in the car yeah the entire family and their friends are sitting out on the lawn of this gorgeous estate they're like painting and you know play, playing instruments and just like this crazy life of leisure they're not doing anything they yeah. have this lunch where they're all sitting around and talking in their lofty you know mid-atlantic accents <laughs> and they're joking about oh we're all socialists here <laughs> you know um and hughes recognizes that they are fabulously wealthy but they're the worst kind of wealth they mm. rep they represent intergenerational wealth where they could literally just live off the interest of you know probably their great grandparents had saved you know had, had built for them and not have to do anything whereas the hughes work ethic or at least as presented in howard is being not only very smart but also coming up with practical applications to change the world mm -hmm. you know he's he's saying you always you know you don't appreciate money because you've always had it Yes, he has money, but he's constantly working to improve himself. The mm -hmm. operative word being working. <laughs> yes. Yes, because he, he said some of us have work to do for a living. Yes. Which is the thing that they criticized him for reading the airplane manuals, but he does that for work. He's not just reading a book because it's fun. Right. I, and, and there, you know, I don't know the psychology of the Hepburn family, but I wonder if that could also be in addition to whatever issues Catherine Hepburn had, perhaps as far as OCD, or they don't really get into it, but she just knows that she understands Howard Hughes on a level that other people don't. I wonder if her becoming an actress and, you know, which involves a lot of work, a lot of struggle uh, to acquire and maintain a career if that attitude is like, oh, she's just going off and uh, why are you bothering to do all this work? You know, you, yeah. you need to sit on the lawn with us and paint things and, and not sell them. Yeah. Yeah. Because to him, it's about creating and constantly doing something, not just resting on your millions upon millions of dollars. Because mm -hmm. one thing that really made Howard Hughes stand out in this movie was despite his enormous fortune growing up, his work ethic was enormous. I mean, this guy was constantly doing stuff, whether he be making Hell's Angels where he's using 24 cameras and he wants three more, or he's building multiple airplanes that will be crashed and destroyed because that's just the way the industry goes. The guy, he reminded me of myself a lot where 
I'll be in a lot of conversations and if you were just talking about things I don't care about, I, it's just like, I just kind of zone out. But immediately when people mention movies, <laughs> I'll spring to life and start talking. That was like him when they would talk about airplanes. He, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, no, and, and that, uh, that lunch scene embodies exactly what you're talking about because he's, he's very nervous and twitchy and kind of picking up on a lot of the, the fact that the, the Hepburn family is talking about a lot of nonsense. Yeah. Um, but when someone asks him about his airplane, he gets really excited about it. For the 10 seconds, he's allowed to discuss it. And then everyone else starts talking over him and, you know, kind of ignoring him. That's when he sort of snaps. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm kind of the same way. And, and unfortunately I, I try and stay interested and engaged in whatever people are talking about, but movies definitely are my trigger as well. It's like, <laughs> did someone say cinema? <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. Uh, uh, no, what, one of the worst triggers I ever had was uh, as, as similar to when they cut him off, they compared him building an airplane to like a birdhouse. They're like, <laughs> oh, you know, Jeffrey built a birdhouse once and it was great. It's just like, fuck you. This isn't a fucking <laughs> birdhouse. I, I remember I was talking to an aunt of mine way back uh, and she said, oh, I just saw Iron Man 2. It was really a great film. And I just wanted to go, what, what the fuck? Why? Because whenever my family asks me what I think of a movie, I'll start telling them what I thought of it, why I didn't like it. And I could just see on their face just how disinterested they, <laughs> they are because I'm going so far into detail with it, which is how I think they felt when... Hughes was trying to, like, he finally found something where he's like, I could connect to these people. I could talk about something I'm passionate about. And immediately when he does, they deflect it. And it's like, oh, you're just one of those fake people. I see. Well, it's because he, uh, despite the conversation he has with John C. Riley at the beginning of the film, when he kind of hires him to be his, uh, manage a lot of the, the meat and potatoes of his business, he claims that, Howard Hughes does that he's a vision guy. He's a big picture guy and he's someone else to take care of all the small details. But as we see throughout the film, he's constantly sketching and looking at blueprints and coming up with formulas. I mean, yeah. he, he draws a diagram, like a physics diagram of a brassiere for Christ's sake to bring yeah. <laughs> to, to get a point across. So I think his version of the small details, anything having to do with the business, you know, when it comes to, there's like the big picture vision, there's the medium picture vision of like, okay, here's how we can accomplish my dream. And then the lower level stuff is like, okay, you go and execute this, you go and build these, you know, prototypes with the rivets. I'll just come run my hand along the side of it, which is very important because he was obsessive about quality control. Um, but there was just, he had, I think his wealth and his ambition and his smarts afforded him the luxury of not having to worry about how to, uh, what is it, liquidate a company or, or mortgage a company or to come up with the $18 million he needed to finish some project. That was all John C. Riley stuff and, and Hughes wasn't interested. That's why he's constantly saying, I just, just go make it happen. <laughs> you know, just do it for me. <laughs> just do your magic, essentially. Yes, I, I love the humor in that movie too. There are so many jokes that really land well when uh, he's talking to John C. Riley, and he says, I want to sh reshoot this entire film, <laughs> and I want to do it with sound. And already, this is a movie they shot with 
a budget that's equivalent to $60 million today, right? But back then, that was a huge deal. It was like $3 million. And Over the course of, I think, three or four years, right? That yes. was the, yeah. yeah, it was an oh. enormous project. He said, well, how much of the movie do you want to shoot? And he goes, or reshoot, I should say. How much of it do you want to reshoot? All of it. <laughs> do we have that kind of money? There's a little pause. No, like I just, <laughs> I was just cracking up during that scene. I love it. There's so many great little moments like that where this guy, he has these insane ideas, but he knows what he's doing in the end. I, I think he believes what he's doing and that, yeah. that gets him very far. Whether or not he actually knows yeah. what he's doing, that's, that's where it gets kind of complicated. That's true. That's because true. He, does, he does get in his, his own way. And part of that, I think, is the, uh, the OCD. Yeah. Because just, and it's a, it's a fascinating question. I don't know if anyone's done a psychological profile on Howard Hughes, but would he have accomplished as much as he had in his life if he hadn't had that you know, personal obstacle that he had to overcome? Was there anything in those, even those episodes where he was spending time holed up in his personal movie theater, peeing into you know, milk jars that fueled or gave inspiration to something that would allow him to push through and finish the Spruce Goose? Right. You know, I feel that way with uh, sometimes my, uh, you know, my mental hangups because I think I'm going to prove everyone wrong. And I think that was sort of his drive when he went to Congress. And he actually, he started out awkward in the hearings before the Senate because he was pouring, I think, about $56 million into his own aircraft, none of which any of those planes have taken off. Yet various other aircraft carriers lost hundreds of millions of American taxpayer dollars in their aircraft. And he called them out on it. And really, that wasn't supposed to be hearing where he was going to grill the center. But that's what he <laughs> turned it to in the end. In the beginning, everybody kind of saw his little strange nuances. You know, they asked him to produce his business partner. He doesn't understand what the word produce means. He doesn't want to produce him forward. So that doesn't happen. He has various other sort of awkward little ticks and moments, but in the end, he gets the upper hand. And it was his way of showing them, yeah, I had this thing. You all know it. But guess what? I'm going to show you what I'm capable of. And I thought that was a brilliant moment of victory for him. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's odd, but it sort of reminded me of the climax of the movie Speed Racer, uh, where he's <laughs> Speed Racer has been completely thrown off the track and he's literally at the bottom of this spiral part of the track. Like he's at the very lowest point he could be mentally and yeah. physically in terms of finishing the big race. But then he gets this moment of inspiration. And he starts spiraling up and thinking about everything he's achieved and everything he's going to achieve. And that gives yeah. him the momentum to push through and say, you know, screw you guys. I'm, <laughs> this is, this is my thing. And half of you people wouldn't, you know, be doing what you're doing if it wasn't for something that I'd already done. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I thought about is the context in which this movie was released. I mean, it's 2004. So um, we are heavy into uh, the Bush administration, uh, you know, rounding the, I think, well, the election already happened by then. So the, we were going into the second term. Yeah. Uh, but at that time, there was a lot of talk about uh, corruption and business, um, like with Halliburton and mm -hmm. um, what was it, Blackwater before they became Z. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's something that it's touched on in this movie 
partially embodied by not only Alan Alda, but the great Alec Baldwin, who absolutely kills it in the yeah. 20 minutes or so of screen time, just representing Hughes's main competition, but also a guy who will do anything. He'll buy anybody, any politician, in order to get the upper hand over his opponent and literally try and take over the world. Um, so it felt timely then. It still feels timely now because... I mean, uh, <laughs> corruption never really goes away. It recedes and then it comes back stronger than ever, usually in the guise of something else. Yeah, he definitely plays the great corporate evil Mongol who's always scheming. You know, he's like Mr. Potter in a way from uh, Wonderful Life. Uh, but, yeah. Well, I, I would say the difference, um, and I, yeah, it's, it's a good comparison. Certainly, he's got the heart of a Mr. Potter, but he's got the demeanor of someone who you kind of want to hang out with. Yeah. Um, you know, he can be polite at cocktail parties. Uh, he's also very cool. I mean, even though he's doing something utterly reprehensible, when he's sitting there uh, talking to Howard Hughes through the door and blowing cigar smoke through the keyhole and having this wonderful conversation about how exactly, it's like a Bond villain speech. He's laying out how exactly he's going to destroy yes. Howard Hughes. <laughs> it's such a cool moment. You're like, God, I wish I was an evil genius like Alec Baldwin in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it was great when Alec Baldwin's finally defeated too. Um, well, well, we don't really... We don't really get that moment, right? It's I oh, think kind, it kind of, of when he's when he's talking to everybody after the Senate hearings, and then he says that TWA will become the oh, airline industry. That's and right. He's I, not going to have his grand scheme, and he just kind of holds the globe. And it's a PG thirteen film, so they let out the first F word, and he just goes, "Fuck," you know, and kind of lets go of his sort of calm, cool demeanor persona for just a little bit for a second. Yeah, but even when he delivers that F-bomb, it's still, yeah. he's not like screaming and knocking. I no. wasn't fully expecting, and I, I didn't see the movie in a long time. So like I a citizen chain tearing the room I thought, he was, gonna, I thought he was going to pick the globe up and throw it at the executives across the room. <laughs> <laughs> Have a Steve Jobs meltdown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm glad it was just subtle. You yeah. Know, he, he probably did that later when he was home or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I did, but the, the the great thing they did establishing between Hepburn and Gardner to piggyback on that a little bit, just go there is Hepburn knew sort of the idea of putting on a performance in front of people and how Howard was different in privacy, just like how she was different privately. But Ava Gardner was great at knowing how to nurse Howard Hughes, how to stand up to him and how to challenge him. So when he needed to get dressed up for Congress, I love that little scene where she's actually sort of rehabilitating him in a way. She's yeah. showing him, there's that great line when he's washing the sink and he had that close up of all the soap sort of smothered together and it's all, ugh. and he says, does that look clean to you? She says, well, the world isn't clean, Howard, but we do our best. That's a, that, that's a great sort of motivator that gets him to, to put the soap back on his face and get himself back together. And she's saying, hey, I'm going to be calm. I'm going to be polite. I'm not going to scream at you and, you know, smack you in the face uh, like she did earlier. But I'm going to be a little strict and say, you need to pick yourself up, but I love you. And I just thought that was great. They, they, they established these movie stars beyond what we know 
of them as stars. We got to know them as people a little bit. And I just thought that was a fantastic sort of way of distinguishing the two women. It is. And I think I was maybe a bit harsh on Kate Beckinsale. I think she's fine in this movie. I think the script does a lot of the heavy lifting that she does in yes. her performance. And part of that might just be her limited screen time. We don't see, spend as much time with her as a character as we do with Catherine Hepburn. Um, but I like what you were talking about as far as uh, what people see of celebrities, because the first hand washing scene that we see when Hughes is alone in a public bathroom is at this gala of some kind. And there's a guy who comes ambling out of one of the toilet stalls. I think he has two canes um, and he hobbles over to the sink next to Hughes. And he's like, can you hand me one of those towels over there? And Howard Hughes is like, I, I, I can't. Then he just, the guy kind of moves around him and gets the towel and Hughes is very visibly like freaked out. What would, what must that guy have thought about the great Howard Hughes? Cause he knew who he was and he could probably just leave the bathroom and say, Oh, that guy is an asshole. He's so stuck up. He wouldn't even hand me a paper towel, not understanding that there was a lot more going on in his brain. So you think about, and it's magnified even now in today's day and age with, you know, celebrity culture, the internet tabloid, you know, news and entertainment reporting. We think we know about someone because of something we see in a headline or we see a tweet or we see a clip of them taken in whatever context. And we're like, Oh, that guy's a dirt bag or that gal is great. We don't have any idea what the truth is. Yeah. It treated everyone sort of like a person. Um, I thought this is also one of Leonardo DiCaprio's best performances. Um, How the hell did he not get an? Do you do you know off the top of your head who won in two thousand five? It would have been for two thousand four. Jamie Fox or Ray? Mm. Yeah, which I yeah, take that away from. Me. <laughs> well, here's here's the thing. Here's what I always thought about Jamie Fox and Ray. He's great at doing an impression of Ray. Right? He's great at bobbling his head around, going, "Yeah, okay," mm -hmm. yeah, but. Outside of the uncanny sort of resemblance, you don't—he doesn't really get what's inside of Ray Charles' head. Where DiCaprio in this movie, you get what's going on inside of Howard Hughes' head. You know, he doesn't look like Howard Hughes. He doesn't sound like Howard Hughes, but you understand Howard Hughes through his performance, and you understand mentally what he's going through. I mean, a lot of that is thanks to. John Logan's screenplay and Martin Scorsese's direction. But this was a role that really kind of fit DiCaprio well in this film of, of this young and completely insecure genius. And sort of that frail voice of his lends favor to that in a certain way where I thought there was far more layers to Leonardo DiCaprio's Howard Hughes than there was to uh, Jamie Foxx's Ray Charles. Which may be a controversial uh, viewpoint, but I stand by it. <laughs> well, I, yeah, and who knows what gets into the academy members' heads when they're voting for these things? But yeah, um, yeah I, it's this is one of those movies, and I guess this happens almost every time I see a Leo DiCaprio movie. I wonder, is he not more appreciated or respected as an actor because of the whole Titanic thing? Because even this movie is only seven years on from that when he was the star of the biggest block history. He was on the cover of like teen magazines and stuff, but he was also a 
I don't know. I just I feel like he's constantly trying to prove himself, and he won. Didn't he win for the Revenant? Yeah. Is that what finally put him over the top? Yeah. Again, I guess I'll give it to him, but I feel like mm. movies like this are a better example of what he can really do. Yeah, that's more like this movie's more about acting. Revenant's more about what he actually went through. This is Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio and the Revenant saying, I went through a forest and I ate a raw bison. For God's sakes, just give me the fucking Oscar already. I had to deal with Alejandro Gonzalez Zinorito, which I've heard from people. Woohoo! You don't want to work for him. So, mm. uh, is it just like a real taskmaster kind of a guy or? Uh, to directly quote my friend, he's a prick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That sucks. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, but she's very adamant that, uh, through her father who works in the industry that he <laughs> hates him. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have to talk more about that off mic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, Mr. Inyarito, if you still want to do an interview with me, I don't represent what she said. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> well, he's not going to do it because he's a prick. No, well, no. <laughs> Birdman's Alleg- one of my, allegedly. Well, Birdman's one of my favorite movies in the last ten years. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah. you know, that whole Birdman versus Boyhood controversy just drove me crazy. <laughs> I loved both those movies. I loved Birdman more, and I've seen that the most. I think I've seen that like six times, and I think three of those were in the theater. Yeah, it, you had to see that movie in the theater. Yeah. You have to see it in the theater about the theater. <laughs> well, that's, and I, yeah. you know, I was thinking about that watching The Aviator too. I don't know if it's just something that is a blind spot for me, but I am a sucker for movies, as they say, about movies or yeah, yeah. just about stagecraft or putting art together. I just love them. And I'm trying to think of examples of bad movies in that vein that I've seen. I, none come to mind. I'm happy to yeah. for someone to shout one out and be like, oh yeah, that did suck. But there's something about it getting beyond like the idea of it being a navel gazing exercise, but really getting into the people who put these things together, what they're like. They're trying to create something that will hopefully inspire other you know, mass audiences. There's something really beautiful about that. And even though The Aviator is also about other things, it's about making movies, and I just – I really dig it. Yeah. Well, the filmmakers, whenever they make something about making a movie, there's endless inspiration to draw from because you're literally standing in the inspiration. So it's, <laughs> it's easy to sort of adapt that in a way. Uh, they, I, I, be, I would love to do a reality show about a guy who just works on set just to show people what it's really like to work on a set – because everyone has this romanticized idea of it. Yeah, sometimes there's fantastic days. But a lot of it's just meticulous. Unless you're the uh, director, you're just sitting around a lot. <laughs> just waiting. Yeah, I've only been on a couple of uh, sets and they were for smaller things. But yeah, there is, there is a lot of waiting and setup. But depending on the actual environment and I think your enthusiasm and experience for it. I mean, I found that even just sitting around waiting for things to happen, I still had that thought, I'm on a movie set. This is yeah. so cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, first set I was ever on was The Weatherman with Nicolas Cage. I was, yeah. Uh, it was a little high school trip through my telecommunications class. 
And I, I snuck up to the front. I wasn't supposed to be in the front. It was a Navy Peary dressed up as Abraham Lincoln in the scene and had like a beard on. I think in the subsequent scene in the end film, he was like banging some girl from there later on. But uh, was Abraham Lincoln? He, uh, I think actually, yeah, in the scene he was. I can't remember. Did, he, uh, did, did she walk in and he had the tall hat like not on his head? <laughs> i'm not sure it was so long ago since i saw that movie um i just i just remember his stand-in was there for a while and then he came in for a few minutes and left and we didn't stay on set the whole time you know like the first set i was on like for the whole day it was probably some low budget thing and then you know i did the transformers films and stuff like that uh but I, I, some of my friends got to work on Dark Knight and stuff like that, which I'm jealous of. I tried to get on Batman Begins in 2005, but yeah. I knew, um, I knew, yeah, I knew, I knew a couple of people I think were extras on on the Dark Knight, um, and so that was really cool. Uh, one of them was actually in the big uh, crowd scene with uh, Heath Ledger and the, uh, it was the the funeral scene. Yeah, the parade. Um, yeah. Parade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was that was pretty sounded pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, so outside of getting detracted from our own personal movie experiences, um, yes, the aviator, I would say this is a great representation of mental health It's a great representation of American ingenuity and passion and drive. Uh, it's a really, this is one of my more favorite biopics because it's not a by the book sort of film. You really that that it earns its almost three hour length because you really feel like you get to take your time with these people and understand them. And it's not like a highlight reel sort of film where it's just going over all the big uh, sort of moments of someone's life and just recreating them for the picture. It actually examines somebody and examines some aspects of someone that maybe a lot of biopics don't do. And it's one of my more favorite representations of mental illness that's put on screen with a lot of care and subtlety and concentration that a cinephile like Scorsese would know how to put in. Well, I think that's a great point is because one of the things that struck me, uh, I was watching this on my television. It's, it's a big screen, but I mean, it's not, it's an older yeah. TV. So people probably would think it's practically the size of a computer monitor. But <laughs> one of the things I really noticed was even though it was a smaller screen than uh, Cineplex, Scorsese knows how to shoot the hell out of stuff to make it feel like you're watching it in a movie theater. Yeah. The Hell's Angels uh, premiere. Uh, oh yeah. They had to recreate all of that from the, you know, the giant, marquee and i think they had like planes and stuff and the big red carpets that look like they had thousands of extras i don't know how much if any of this was created digitally but you get the feeling that scorsese you could almost imagine him as a howard hughes type person who's just obsessed with getting everything right and getting the vision that's in his head for recreating that time period onto the big screen he's like no this has to be this way hmm. uh, because we have to make people believe and he made a believer out of me um but yeah, it's a it's a gorgeous film. A lot of great production value. Um, it's totally immersive, and yeah. it made it also got me thinking about history. 
because I don't know how much of it was true, how much of it was embellished, but yeah. you look at how much Howard Hughes was involved in intercontinental travel, uh, mm. in like creating different military aircraft, like the the troop and uh, vehicle transports. Yeah, <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. He's like drawing sketches on the back of a piece of paper, like, oh yeah, this is going to be the future of the military. Yeah. Uh, so, like I said earlier, it invites you to go back and just like explore history and find out even more. So we tend to think of history as just events done by you know groups of people or you know companies or governments but there are people who come up with these ideas and getting to know who those people were and what was going on in their lives when they made these things happen fascinating yeah yeah absolutely uh the only thing that looked bad in the movie was the cgi that was oh well it doesn't hold up it's not yeah. as bad as some of like the the star wars prequels cgi um, hmm. and I don't know how much of that was, I don't remember it sticking out when I saw it in 2004. Um, I think I might've registered that it's, you know, there's no way that they shot this, you know, there wasn't an actual dogfight with Leo DiCaprio thousands of feet in the air, <laughs> Yeah. but it looks worse now than it did then. But it's still, if you suspend that disbelief for just a few minutes, you'll get through it. Of course, Sir Nolan directed it. He'd actually have him doing a real dog fight in the air. No, <laughs> he wouldn't. Hey, let's do it for real, although you can't see anything. No, he actually finally mastered it. If you look at the action from Batman Begins compared to Dark Knight, it's like day and night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or day and night with a K in the front of it. Uh... <laughs> no, Night and Day was a uh, Tom Cruise, uh, Cameron Diaz movie from 10 years ago. Oh, gosh. Cameron Diaz, who was also in a movie that Martin Scorsese directed called Gangs of New York. Now I'm just turning into that section from IMDb where you're like, this actor was in this and they were in that. Like, yeah, we know. <laughs> they all work together. <laughs> well, I think that's all I had to say on The no, Aviator. I... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's how you broke up. Were you, were you speaking? Oh, no, I was going to say I would forgotten that, uh, that connection about Oh, yeah. I, I was saying I'd forgotten that connection about uh, Cameron Diaz and, and Gangs of New York. Yeah, yeah. That movie, I, I have mixed feelings about it. Some of it I love. Some of it I'm like, eh, specifically Cameron Diaz and DiCaprio aren't that believable in that movie. I still have never seen Gangs of New York. That's one of my Scorsese blind spots I got to fix. Oh, uh, yeah. See, Scorsese, he makes a lot of movies outside of, I mean, not talking about Gangs of New York, but uh, talking about Aviator. He makes a lot of movies that are not just mob or, or crime films. You know, he makes a lot of musical documentaries. He makes uh, a lot of films about religion. He, he makes the only movies about religion that I like. The Last Temptation of Christ is the only Jesus movie that I like because it's a, it's a film that examines what would it be like if you were Jesus? What flaws would you have? What mistakes would you make? And they examine him like a human being not this person who is greater than everyone and knows what he has to sacrifice. And it's not a blood fest like uh, the Passion of the Christ was. And then he well, made... I, I got to push back on you because Last Temptation of Christ was really inaccurate. Uh, oh, no, know, it's not supposed I, to be accurate. Well, no, I'm saying I was there. Yeah. Um, and I, my, last, my last days on earth were nothing like that. Yeah. <laughs> It's all lies. Yeah. I didn't have a guardian angel to save me. And then I decided to be crucified again. Okay. 
And then, of course, Silence. Oh, my God. That, that's a movie that's so difficult to watch. But my God, talk about a movie that really is about what it feels like to break from your faith. Uh, and, of course, with his religious background, uh, there, there are some personal aspects to it, despite Andrew Garfield's ridiculous accent in the movie. Yeah, that was a bit of a challenge. But, I mean, yeah, Silence was oh, – I. I want to say I loved that movie. It was a hard experience to see, but I did get to see it in a theater, which is, yep. you know, and people don't talk about that movie. Maybe it's because it's so, you know, rough, but uh, yeah, for folks out there, if you haven't taken the time, definitely watch it. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a man of more than just the crime films, but thank you for coming on. Go check out the aviator. If you want to check out Ian, Go to kickseat or kickingtheseat.com. Kickseat.com. Kickseat.com. I just have a link, so I just click on it, and I just attach <laughs> it in the description. Sorry. Right. Uh, so uh, go check out kickseat.com for all of his uh, stuff, uh, for all of his content, and also go on his YouTube channel as well. Just type in kicking the seat in the search bar. It'll pop right up in there. And if you want to check me out, check out YPA Reviews. The YPA stands for You'll Probably Agree. If you type in either of them, you'll see my, uh, you'll see my website, you'll see my YouTube show, see all that stuff. You know, you use Google, not Bing or Yahoo search engines that try to spam my computer. Like, <laughs> Is that a, a thing? Uh, it happened recently. Like somehow Yahoo search engine got like stuck on all my browsers and i have to take it to a computer store to get it off of there oh my god yeah <laughs> oh that sucks well thank you for for having me on again this is uh it's always fun and the aviator yeah i'm glad we revisited it because it's again it's a film that i don't know why i haven't seen it more times yeah the movie really did see the way the future when it came to our own quarantine. Yeah. Dude, I had forgotten about that opening when it opens and that's the first thing you hear. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if his mom was really like that, but yeah. I can see why they didn't go over his past. So if you saw the enormous wealth he came from, people would go, ah, oh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on and we will see you later the way of the future the way of the future the way of the future